You're listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit ppe.mercatus.org. Thank you very much, Stephanie. It's great to be here. I'm just thrilled about what's going on at this meeting and the people, and I'm just enjoying myself more than I can tell you. All right, so Austrian epistemics. So that's my topic today. I I define epistemics as the study of the production and distribution of knowledge in society. Epistemics is the study of the production and distribution of knowledge in society. Don Boudreau will recognize the allusion to Fritz Machloff in that definition. Epistemics, this is important, epistemics is not epistemology because it's not about like true or justified or scientific or philosophical knowledge. Epistemology, at least as usually construed, is like somehow about fancy knowledge. Epistemics is about not fancy knowledge. Well, you know, the knowledge in epistemology is fancy because it commands the respect and acceptance of philosophers. It's scientifically justified, incorrigible, and therefore true, whatever. I mean, all this stuff like that. Epistemics does not require knowledge to be fancy or even true. It's just the knowledge that actually guides uh, action. So again, it's the study of the production and distribution of knowledge in society. So the founder of the Austrian school, Karl Menger, Sit up a little bit straight on your seats, will you? <laughs> so he famously included human knowledge at a causal connection between a, a causal connection between a thing and a need as one of the so-called prerequisites for a thing to be a good, for a thing to be a good. So in this, and like a, actually quite a lot of other ways, Menger was totally putting epistemics at the very foundation of economic theory. You think you had to stand up straight and sit up straight in your seats before now, I mean. So in working out his argument on uh, impossibility of uh, rational economic calculation under socialism, Mises noted that the division of labor, and now I quote, entails a kind of intellectual division of labor, which would not be possible without some system of calculating production. Intellectual division of labor. So Mises' insight into the intellectual division of labor sets the stage for Hayek's development of the idea in his 1937 essay, Economics and Knowledge. Hayek says, I'm quoting, Clearly there is here a problem of the division of knowledge, which is quite analogous to and at least as important as the problem of the division of labor. But while the latter, division of labor, has been one of the main subjects of investigation ever since the beginning of our science, the former, division of knowledge, has been almost completely neglected, although it seems to me to be the really central problem of economics as a social science. Um, so this he called later in the Hayek on Hayek, I guess that's maybe 1979, forgive me if I got that date wrong. He, he calls this, quote, the most original contribution I've made to the theory of economics. Pause on that for a second, right? Because the usual story is like Hayek figured out that different people know different things. Right? And then this is like the most important contribution he made. This is the big thing in economics. So what's going on here? Of course, the point is the contribution wasn't so much dispersed knowledge. The contribution was to realize how important this problem is for economics as a social science. Right? That was really, you know, the contribution. Right? And the other thing is, it would, he didn't just only go, oh, dispersed knowledge, he figured that out. Oh, it's important. 
He also gave us a kind of epistemic vision of how that knowledge is, how, how knowledge is produced and distributed in society. And it seemed to me that this epistemic, the sort of Hayekian epistemic vision, it's not well understood even like, you know, in, in, within Austrian groups. Right? So I'm going to try to develop uh, what I'm going to call an Austrian epistemics. So I won't worry too much if I'm like totally right with Hayek or something like that. But I'm going to develop an Austrian epistemics. I think it's, it's all in Hayek, but um, this was an ironic image created at Evonomics to, <laughs> to, to, to suggest that the, the Austrians, you know, we just worship Hayek, and I just really don't understand where it's coming from. <laughs> but, <laughs> so it's no accident that Hayek had these two students who did more than anybody to push this kind of epistemic vision of, 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 of uh, economics. Okay? Uh, and of course, that's Ludwig Lachmann on the left and uh, George Shackle on the right. George Lennox Sharman Shackle uh, on the right. And I, I purposely put Lachmann on the left, even though politically maybe it should be the other way. So that the, in this picture of him, which I just absolutely love, we, uh, he's looking admiringly at Shackle, which is appropriate. <laughs> So I learned the word epistemics, which has, you know, Shackle's not the only guy who used the word, but I learned the word epistemics from Shackle, who defined epistemics as, quoting again, the theory of thoughts. Okay? So this definition was very agreeable to uh, my dear old teacher, Ludwig Lachmann, who always described Shackle as the master subjectivist. So for Lachman, subjectivism is about what happens in individual minds. For Shackle, subjectivism is about what happens in individual minds. So on the one hand, Shackle and Lachman preserved and promoted an epistemic vision of economics. On the other hand, however, their epistemic vision, I think, captured really only a portion of Hayek's broader epistemics. I still consider myself something of a, of a Lachmanian hermeneut. I stand totally by that. But when we focus on thoughts, we may lose sight of the role of things like habit, custom, trade, evolution, various heterogeneous local human associations in epistemics. Yeah? So this gives us, you know, this just kind of exclusive focus on thoughts gives us, I think, a, a stunted epistemics that we should ought to try to transcend. And as I will try to suggest presently, we need to recognize the various knowledge processes that happen outside conscious individual thought. So the knowledge sort of correlative to the division of labor is a product of the division of labor. At the same time, it's this knowledge, this division of knowledge that makes the division of labor possible. So it's kind of going in both directions. In other words, the division of labor and the division of knowledge co-evolve. So knowledge that co-evolves with division of labor is cynical, evolutionary, exosomatic, constitutive, and tacit. These terms may be combined to produce the acronym SELECT. Although you got to understand, you know, the L is, is, is the L is part of evolutionary, right? not standard for a separate. Right? So that's the only thing you have to remember. And then you got to select knowledge. Otherwise, Austrians would be upset. That's right. <laughs> Which we don't want. Cynological, evolutionary, exosomatic, constitutive, tacit. Okay. So let, let me take up uh, the, the concepts in a little bit, maybe a different order here. Knowledge is constitutive. So I, here I'm just totally like drawing from, uh, uh, actually a somewhat, 
I think, Bruce, wouldn't you say a little used distinction in Hayek's um, counter-revolution between constitutive and uh, uh, explanatory ideas? Um, I think there may be some slight logical distinctions here, but I mean, I'm just totally getting this from Hayek. So knowledge is constitutive if it constitutes a part of the phenomenon. It is speculative. I said explanatory. I meant to say speculative. It is speculative if it explains the phenomenon. So the distinction of vocabulary here, I said, comes right out of Hayek. Uh, knowledge is constitutive if its possession becomes one of the causes of a social phenomenon. Knowledge is speculative if it explains something, be it a social phenomenon, a natural phenomenon, or maybe somehow something else. The categories, constitutive and speculative knowledge, they totally overlap because, you know, much, much speculative knowledge is constitutive. Think of like, you know, the, the engineers use classical mechanics to design bridges and buildings so that classical mechanics explains, you know, motions, celestial, motions of bodies, celestial and terrestrial. That's totally speculative knowledge. Right? It's explanatory. But then, you know, we use it to build bridges and stuff. So that's, that's really represent. Most of the time you find a speculative knowledge is also at some, somewhere in the system constitutive, or at least a lot of time that's true. But not all constitutive knowledge is speculative. Sailors had constitutive knowledge of their craft, if I may borrow an example from Bernard Mandeville, long before scientists acquired a speculative knowledge of the mathematical principles of sailing. Another example, think about these, you know, Jane Goodall observed chimpanzees making tools. Right? You'd strip the, you'd get the twig and you'd strip it and you stick it in the thing and the insects go on and you right? so they had a constitutive knowledge. And chimpanzees, chimpanzees in the wild have a constitutive knowledge of tool making. Now, presumably, they don't have a speculative knowledge of tool making. They don't have a chimpanzees in the wild certainly do not have uh, human language. Uh, so, you know, not all constitutive knowledge is speculative. Yeah. Um, knowledge changes over time so in a process of variation, selection, and retention. So that's evolutionary knowledge. Knowledge uh, produces, therefore, a stream of novelty. In human knowledge, there's constant novelty. Knowledge is exosomatic. Right? So it is embodied in objects existing outside the organism that using that knowledge. So Popper used all the time an example of a book and everything. Okay, I like the example of an egg timer, right? In some sense, you know, the knowledge of when to take the, take the egg off the pot, you know, take the egg off the fire, is embodied in the egg timer, not the cook. So it is exosomatic. I think probably tacit, the concept of tacit knowledge is pretty familiar. Knowledge, you know, riding a bicycle is the big example. Knowledge is tacit if it exists in our skills, our habits, our practices, rather than, you know, some kind of explicit form that we're like writing down. Now, finally, knowledge is synecological. If, if the knowing unit is not an individual, but a collection of interacting individuals, as Leonard Reed taught us in of course, picking up, obviously, on the woolen coat comment in Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. But anyway, as Leonard Reed taught us, no one person knows how to make a pencil. Pencil-making knowledge exists in the system. It is cynicological. So I borrowed this term cynicological from ecology, where cynicology means, quoting from uh, actually the Oxford English Dictionary, the study of the relationships between the environment and a community of organisms occupying it. Also, the relationships themselves. So etymologically, sin means same. So sin ecological or sin ecology means same, etymologically means same, econ, uh, same ecology. So the idea is that you have these different sort of entities, organisms or whatever, interacting in the same environment. Okay? 
So synecological knowledge is not independent of okay, the, 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 those interacting entities or the environment. Okay? It exists, as with the Leonard Reed's beautiful pencil example, in the system and not in some individual cranium somewhere. So the knowledge that's correlative to the division of labor is always constitutive and evolutionary. Um, certainly it's always constituted just by definition, and I think it's always also always uh, evolutionary. But it is, it, it is not necessarily exosomatic, synecological, and tacit, characteristically so, but not necessarily so. So putting these characteristics and knowledge together in the right order, that gives us select knowledge. Knowledge in the division of labor is synecological, evolutionary, exosomatic, constitutive, and tacit. Does it matter that knowledge is select, synecological, evolutionary, exosomatic, constitutive, and tacit? I think so. The socialists thought, the, I, mean, I mean, really, you know, the old, not Bernie Sanders, right? I mean, you know, the, the old, hot, red socialists, you know, that thought that this guy was going to be, like, terrific. They thought knowledge was somehow individualistic instead of synecological, that knowledge is static instead of evolutionary, that somehow in our heads, never exosomatic, that's bookish and not constitutive, explicit and not tacit. If they'd have been right, probably, you know, it wouldn't have been a problem with socialist calculation. Maybe there would have been for some reason we're not thinking of right now, but probably it would have been all right, probably could have solved the problem. But instead, knowledge is synecological, evolutionary, exosomatic, constitutive and tacit. So uh, I think it matters. So let us build on our select understanding of dispersed knowledge to, to and, and viewing the Mises-Hayek theory of socialist planning as sort of the lead example of Austrian epistemics. There's, our, there's like our leading example of Austrian epistemics. Armed with this understanding of select knowledge, let's, let's build on that. The theory of epistemic systems gives us one framework, by no means the exclusive framework, that may be useful for someone wishing to work in Austrian epistemics. So as you can see on the slide, I define epistemic systems as social processes viewed from the perspective of their tendency to help or frustrate the production of local truth. So in this context, local truth may mean true beliefs, could mean correct expectations, appropriate behavior, or something else depending on context. Local truth is getting it right. Sort of the best summary statement. Local truth is getting it right. So epistemic systems are social processes viewed from the perspective of their tendency to help or frustrate the production of local truth. So here's a, here's a simple or representation of a simple epistemic system. The sender selects a message from a message set on the left, delivers it to the receiver, who then makes some kind of judgment based in part on the message received. Maybe he's going to make the judgment about whether the message is true or whatever it might be, or whether he should do this or that action. Some kind of judgment of the receiver is going to depend in some way on the message sent by the sender who draws on a message set. So these are the elements, sender, receiver, messages. The senders send messages to receivers who judge truth or whatever it might be, in part from the messages received. So here's a simple example. Consider a case in which the message sets just got two elements, match, no match. Like fingerprints, you know, they match, they don't match. 
gotta be careful, you know, the, the, the fingerprint experts get excited. We don't use that vocabulary. You know, you obviously don't know anything about our advanced science because you use this vulgar terminology, match, no match. We talk about individualization. Okay. <laughs> so let's consider a message that got the two elements, match, no match. The sender is, let us say, a forensic examiner being asked to say if the latent fingerprint from the crime scene matches the role prints taken from the police suspect in the police station. The receiver in this case, I'm going to change receiver in a minute, but the receiver in this case, let's say, is the police agency for which the forensic examiner works. The crime labs typically in America organized under the police or prosecution, so they're working for the cops. The examiner's utility function gives weight to both the truth of the matter and the preferences of police. Right? So it's, 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 in this example, the, the mathematical product of the probabilities the, the examiner attaches to the truth of her statement, be it match or no match, and the value of that message, match or no match, in the eyes of the police. Okay? So, so, you know, the, the forensic scientist in this just little example is truth-preferring. Truth matters to this person, to this sender. So the receiver to police attaches a value of zero to no match and one to match. They want to get the guy. And in fact, unfortunately, that's, that's actually often how the criminal justice system in this country works because the, the police have an incentive to garner convictions, as I demonstrate in an article with um, one of my old colleagues at FDU. Uh, the police have a, uh, an incentive to get convictions independently of like discriminating properly between the guilty and the innocent. All right, so unfortunately, that's all too realistic a representation of what might in many cases be the police preference function. So if match has a non-zero probability, so look, you can see the point. Let me read my notes. You can see the point. Let me say that the, let me imagine that the, the, the probability of no match is 0.75. The forensic scientist looks at the fingerprints and thinks, okay, 75%, this is a no match. Okay, but the utility to me of saying no match to the police is zero. Right? Because, because they don't want to hear that. So even though I think it's only like maybe 25% that that's actually a match, I'm totally going to say match because 0.25 is greater than zero. Okay. All right, so this example um, immediately shows you, it's a really humble little example, just to illustrate the idea of epistemic systems and modeling the stuff as, you know, choice from a message set. Um, and yet it already has given us a lesson, namely the value of masking. If we could somehow mask from the forensic examiner in this humble example, mask from the sender knowledge of receiver preferences, right, then we, we get a different outcome. Right? Let's take those same probabilities, right? 75%, that's no match, you know, 25% it's a match. Well, if, if, if I don't know, if, if I maybe know that the police got a one-zero preference, I just don't know which is one and which is zero, then this becomes one-half expected value, one-half expected value, and then 0.75 times a half is bigger than 0.25 times a half. Suddenly, I become truth-honoring in, in the message I send to the, to the police. So that illustrates the value of so-called masking or blinding procedures, which, you know, we're familiar with in, in like, you know, research science, right, double-blind uh, tests, all that stuff. So here's a graph illustrating the simple epistemic system we've been considering. Right? The same one I had up earlier. There's only one sender here. So we have a case of monopoly epistemics. The sender's an expert, 
with a monopoly right to give an opinion on whether the known and the royal prince, you know, match. So in our simple example, the receiver was the police agency. At trial, the receiver maybe is the jury. Uh, And the jury may be more interested in truth, not that interested in defending the police theory. So when applying the theory of epistemic systems to forensic science, we may sometimes be able to model the receiver as as truth-preferring rather than conviction-preferring. Uh, boy, there's a lot of issues here. I'm just trying to illustrate sort of how these ideas unfold and how you would use them and stuff like that. So please allow me to just like not get into the weeds of like how you really gonna get the receiver to be the jury and not the police. You know, I mean that's a that's a big issue that I've addressed in a paper called How to Improve Forensic Science, 2005, and another work on forensic science. Here's here is represented a more competitive situation. My co-authors and I have dubbed democratic epistemics. We can imagine a requirement that the police, sometimes at least, sends evidence to, say, three independent crime labs. As we're going to see in a moment, I got evidence that three is the right number, actually. Uh, if these labs know what the uh, what a sort of answer the customer wants, you know, you see some of this literature in forensic science, right? Who's our customer? You know, the police are our customers? Are you kidding? So um, this is just good business principles. Anyway, you know, so if, if these guys all have the same biases, basically, right, they know what the police want to hear and, you know, they, they get the message or whatever, then you could have a problem because then you get three times over the seemingly independent message, these prints match, and they totally don't match, right? So that could just actually make things worse. But if you can construct it, and I think there are some ways that we could, if you can construct it so that the senders are really independent and they don't sort of know what the right answer is from the point of view of, this, of the receiver, then, you know, um, maybe you could, you could improve the system. Maybe that redundancy would improve, would improve receiver judgments okay? if the receiver is like the trier of fact, the jury, or the judge. And in fact, you can do an experiment. You can test that in the human subject's laboratory. So in, oops, what's going on here? There we go. So in an experiment conducted several years ago by my co-authors and I, I, I divided subjects into senders and receivers, although we used very neutral language, no hint about a, some kind of criminal justice context for what we were doing. Uh, for us, the senders represent crime labs, the receivers represent juries. So senders are shown one of three shapes, triangle, circle, squared. They're asked to send a report to receivers indicating which one of these three, indicating one of these three shapes, triangle, circle, square. And then the receivers are asked to guess what the, what the sender was shown based on the report received from the sender. Okay. Now, receivers, they get $5 for a correct guess, $2 for an incorrect guess. So we totally give the receivers the incentive, you know, aligned with truth. Senders are paid $3 for inducing a correct guess. Right? So if, if, if you send the correct shape, if you report the correct shape, and then they pick it, you get 3 bucks. Senders are also given a bias of either a dollar or five dollars to make a report that's maybe false. So a possibly different, possibly different uh, shape. If if they pick that, you get well, depending on the iteration here, either one dollar or five dollars. So you get the low bias and the high bias condition. Yeah? And then you get the so if they pick the bias shape, you get the bias payment. So in other words, we send them something like this. Right? The supplementary shape is so that's the bias. The value to supplementary shape, well, in this case, it's only a dollar, right? 
So probably they're not going to pick that because, you know, that's a low bias condition, right? Better to get the $3 than the $1. The correct shape is a circle, okay? And then you fill out this form, okay? And that form is going to be sent to the receiver. So you fill out, the, in this case, what do we say? We saw the, the bias was only worth like a dollar, right? So what, what, is the, what does the sender probably want to tell the receiver? Yeah, probably. Okay. probably. You'd be surprised. Not always. Okay. They start to overthink it. You know, well, really? Well, most of the time, yeah, you know, they follow their incentives, as, as typically happens in a well-designed experiment in human subjects. But, hey, you kind of figure out their incentives and follow it. Okay. So, that, so this is what the receiver gets. And then the receiver guesses triangle, circle, square. Right? So, okay, so what do we get? Well, we got a lot of results. But this is the one that really makes me sit up straight in my chair, okay? uh, consider the so-called high bias condition. So consider the case where that, that supplemental shape, you know, the bias shape, it has a value of $5 instead of the correct answer, which is $3. Okay? So, and compare, when we run the experiment I've been describing with just one sender to the, to, to, to the time when we run it with three senders, and measure here the rate, in such cases of high bias, the rate of receiver error. Receiver guessing what's not objectively the correct shape. Well, as you, no surprise, most of the time in the, in the monopoly epistemic situation of one sender, most of the time you know, the receiver got no better policies than just like do what the sender says, and you get a 75% error risk. Okay. Build in some redundancy and some heterogeneity among senders, which is a very crucial point, and suddenly that error rate goes down to 25%. You improve system performance through redundancy. So, so this is, I mean, boy, have we just, you know, barely scratched on the surface on this thing. But maybe you can start to see what a research program in experimental epistemics would look like. Okay. Um, an, analogy, in, an analogy to Vernon Smith's economic systems design, we got here epistemic systems design. Basically just replacing the, the, the criterion of efficiency with the criterion of veracity. Okay? So you can start to see how this works, right? You have some idea what, you know, three is better than one or whatever. You have some idea what would be a good epistemic system. You test the ideas in your lab. You know the truth because you construct the truth in the, in the lab. So you can objectively measure the epistemic uh, performance of the subjects. You can therefore uh, objectively measure the epistemic performance of alternative institutional arrangements. So you got an idea of what might be a good design for an epistemic system. You test it out in the lab. Often, the result's going to surprise you. So you tweak the design. You go back to the lab, see what happens, until finally you get convergence, okay? that, that you're getting a result you like and that you expect and that you sort of understand and that works in the lab. Now you've got an institutional arrangement okay, that you can reasonably like put out into the world and try in the world. Now, once you're out in the world, real world, probably going to need to tweak it again, right? but you're not probably like going to have like a meltdown or something. You're probably going to have something you can work with and improve on and use. Okay? So the resulting design, if that's even a right word, has a good chance to work well in the natural world of social life. All right. So that's sort of, you know, an um, a, a peek behind the curtain of epistemic, uh, experimental epistemics.
Now, in this, in this case, it was all about, because I'm working on the stuff in forensic science, all about forensic scientists. Forensic scientists are experts. Okay? So there is, uh, as this experiment may help to suggest, a problem of experts. We need a theory of experts. And I think this epistemic system, testosterone epistemics, totally feeds into a theory of experts. Okay? So recall our basic representation of epistemic systems. The senders are picking up messages from a message set, and their choices, we view them as utility maximizing rather than truth maximizing. So the senders choose what message to send. They choose what information to convey. Okay? So that's information choice. Information choice, I call the sort of my approach to the theory of experts, information choice theory to sort of underline exactly this idea that the senders are choosing what information to convey okay, as utility maximizing, or would be utility maximizing agents. Okay. Um, so the sender's an expert. If the sender's an expert, she still chooses what information to convey, and that choice is, in the general case, utility maximizing rather than truth maximizing. Now look, it may seem trivial to say that experts are utility maximizers and not, in the general case, truth maximizers, but Levy and Puritan Levy have noted that economists tend to assume other economists are pure truth seekers. So it's amazing. We actually make the mistake of like not... When we start talking about experts, especially experts such as ourselves, we, we tend like not to be real conscious of the fact of the, um, that really we should figure them to be generally utility maximizers rather than truth maximizers. So an economic understanding of expertise would improve understanding in areas that economists have given scant attention. Much of the literature on forensic science assumes either that forensic scientists are like these pure truth seekers, or they're just like open fraud. Well, you know, there's a few bad apples. We know that. So there's cases of fraud. And then there's just like perfect, spotless honesty. I think there's some subtlety to the situation okay, that the theory of information choice may give us some access to. You guys, you guys recognize who's here? Right? So this is, this is 1962. On the left, that's, listen to this, that's Ronald Coase. I found out recently it's Coase, not Coase. So that's Ronald Coase, Duncan Black, James Buchanan, James Ferguson, Warren Nutter, Gordon Tullock, and finally my teacher, Leland B. Yeager. So I choose the label information choice in analogy to, you know, these are like the, some of the greatest pioneers of, you know, the most important pioneers of public choice theory. UVA. That was UVA? That was Ralph's Hall UVA. It was Ralph's Hall UVA, 1962. So I choose to label information choice in analogy to public choice. Just as public choice theory assumes people are the same in political markets as in other markets, information choice theory you know, says you're the same when you're acting as an expert and when you're not acting as an expert. Experts and non-experts are you know, the same amount selfish, the same amount foolish, and so on. Okay? So if we're to have a theory of experts, okay, so that's, that's kind of why it's information choice theory. Uh, that, you know and the basic framework, right, that we're viewing the expert as choosing what information to share, okay? Um, now, if we're going to have a theory of experts, we need a definition of experts. This is really important. We have to have a, have a, a definition of experts. And if it's going to be an economic theory of experts, we need an economic definition of expert. Okay? Theorists of expert, including economic theorists of expert, have focused on the supposed knowledge, the expertise of the expert. Uh, there are at least two problems with this move. First of all, 
there's a division, as we've seen, there's a division of knowledge in society. Okay? So each participant in the division of labor has specialized knowledge. So if we try to define experts by the possession of expertise, well, everyone's an expert. Now the word expert isn't doing any work for us. Right? So if everybody's an expert, nobody's an expert. Right? So um, uh, that's, I think, a really deep problem with, with focusing on these, the experts' supposed knowledge. Moreover, any definition of expert in terms of knowledge or expertise, it's, that's not an economic definition. It doesn't identify the expert's role in the system of supply and demand, the system of trades going on that constitutes the division of, of labor. I think I have a definition that works. In information choice theory, an expert is anyone paid for his or her opinion. Anyone paid for his or her opinion. So economists, forensic scientists, statisticians, these are experts. Race car driver, not an expert. That race car driver has, if he's one of the good ones, he has quite a, an abundant select knowledge of how to drive a car. Right? It's cynicological because there's the team, you know, the pit crew and all that stuff like that. So it's cynicological, it's evolutionary, right? It wasn't just invented now how you, you know, drive a Formula One race car or something like that, right? It's, it, it's a, it evolved up. It's exosomatic. You've got dials, you know, and he's looking at his dials and stuff like that. Um, so it's exosomatic. It's certainly constitutive knowledge, practical knowledge. It's not like the, the, the textbook theory of driving a race car. And, of course, a lot of it is tacit. If you think, you think there's a lot of tacit knowledge riding a bicycle, how about, you know, driving a Formula One race car, right? So, it's, so, so the, the race car driver has abundant select knowledge of race car driving. But we're not paying him for his knowledge. We're paying him to actually drive the car. So he's not an expert. Um, so I, and I, th I think it can be shown, we don't have time for this, but uh, very importantly, actually, I think it can be shown that uh, this definition of expert, anyone paid for his opinion, uh, leads to models that cannot be reduced to principal agent models or asymmetric information models. This used to bug me, you know. I just felt like I was doing something sort of different when I'm working on experts. But, you know, so what's, so this is just asymmetric information, right? Oh, no, why not? I don't know. You know, and I think I think I think I can show now that no no this is really not asymmetric information although there's like an overlap it's really not principal agent models although yeah there's an overlap but it's really actually a distinct a distinct category and and importantly so and some of the what I now consider to be the canonical models of information choice theory don't fit in those two obvious boxes principal agent asymmetric information all right, so here's the behavior, basic behavioral assumptions in the theory of information choice. Experts seek utility. I like to put it that way, right? Because I don't like Max U. Somebody mentioned Max U yesterday. I think it was you, Emily. Um, you know, I don't, I, I, I mean, sometimes Max U is fine. I was just doing it earlier, right? But, but we have to recognize that, you know, sometimes you don't achieve the maximum of utility that you might have. And why not? Well, because cognition is limited and erring which is our second behavioral assumption. And again, here too, for reasons that maybe I'll just not mention, to just, except to just allude to, I don't like the term bounded rationality. Uh, Teppo Phelan, from, uh, a management professor at Oxford, just, just uh, sent me a manuscript on the all-seeing eye, in which he makes, I think correctly, the point, yeah, the all-seeing, which he makes correctly, I think, the point, that kind of Herbert Simon uh, bounded rationality assumption, uh, it's, basically it's not an interpretive framework. So there's no really room for interpretive error. There's just the limited scope of what you see, but the all-seeing eye sees all correctly. I think there's some 
considerable justice in that. So I, I like to avoid the term bounded rationality, although nobody got a monopoly on the definition of bounded rationality. So, you know. But that's the lingo I like to use. Expert cognition is limited and erring. And finally, this one's important. Incentives skew expert errors. Um, this third assumption may be less obvious, but I was driven to it by the observation that even the most scrupulous forensic scientists seem to be tilted in favor of their institutional interests, which often means in favor of the police theory. And I mean, you know, I, I come to, you know, meet and know a little bit some of these forensic scientists. And so you can see some of these guys, like they're totally like they, they'll be mortified to think that they were biased, but you can't believe X. You can't think Y. Well, they do believe X. They do think Y. They do make these mistakes in the direction of the police theory because they're working for the police. Right? So look, th think about econometrics for a second. You know, how do you do your econometrics? Everybody in this room is scrupulous and perfect, I know. But how, how do those bad econometricians do their job? You get, you, you get a result that you, somehow you don't want. It's not the right result. And you're like, well, let me check my code, make sure everything is right. Is this data set properly updated? You look for problems. If you get the right result, no problems, everything's great. <laughs> so that differential you know, energy to, to search out a problem may be going to lead me to an error. Is that an honest error or is that outright fraud? Well, yeah, because incentives skew even honest errors. I may not realize that I have this differential response to the two kind of econometric results. Right? So I'm honest. I would be mortified to think I wasn't scrupulously neutral, and yet I'm not. <clears throat> so this, this goes somewhere. It leads to a theory of expert failure. Expert failure means the expert giving an incorrect opinion. Okay? Um, so you can see the point, right? Competition is better than monopoly, and it's better when the expert is, sorry, let me, there we go. It's better when the expert is an advisor rather than, than uh, Bush like the decider. Okay? Um, and so let's, let's just look at the two, you know, the southeast and the northwest. So, you know, forensic scientists are, you know, monopoly experts who decide for the system. It's terrible. There's a lot of great scope here for expert failure. Or the example that Pert Levy and Pearton Levy uh, rightly uh, return to all the time. State administered eugenics programs, lots of opportunity for expert uh, failure there. Even within the, the paradigm of, of, of eugenics, there's opportunity for expert uh, failure because the expert has a monopoly and is deciding for the non expert. Compare that to like consumer reports, strictly advisory, right? You buy the magazine, doesn't mean you have to make their choice for you know, the poster or whatever it is. Right? Um, so they're strictly advisory, and, and, and there's competition. Right? If, 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 if Consumer Reports uh, starts to give bad reports on a regular basis, okay, well, they, they suffer competition from other similar sites, CNET, and all these other things. Right? So, you know, we, th we, we view Consumer Reports, that's, that's a warm fuzzy right there. Right? That, you know, that's not so warm and fuzzy. Right? So, so that's kind of um, uh, just a sort of peek at uh, the theory of expert failure. This is just, I mean, it's very underdeveloped, the theory of expert failure. We need more work on that big time. Okay? One of the things that's, that's a source, a huge source of expert failure that's not in this little chart, novelty. 
often experts are asked, and this came up big time in you know, the, the crisis from 2008, often experts are asked to predict the future or tout their supposed ability to predict the future. Okay? But if knowledge is evolutionary, then expert predictions easily become expert failure. This is because evolution is creative. Okay? Thus, we should include in a theory of Austrian, we should include in Austrian epistemics the theory of creative evolution. I think I have to just talk. How many minutes do I have? About 10 to 20. I'll try to make it more like 10, less like 20. So the theory of creative evolution draws on recent work in evolutionary theory by this guy, Stuart Kaufman and his co-authors, over in you know, biology. Now, I've been working with Stuart Kaufman and others to bring this ideas from biology into social science, entrepreneurial studies, legal theory, pardon me, and you know, generally sort of the human sciences. To get a sense of what's going on with this, let's just think about the history of art for a minute. So here we have a good example from Pisa in 1250. Uh, this is the masterpiece of uh, a guy named Giunto Pisano. Here's a good example of the medieval art that Giorgio Vasari just hated. You guys recognize that name, Vasari? So he wrote his famous uh, history of the, no, what is it? Let me get it right. Uh, lives, sorry, I was saying history. Lives of the artists, painters, painters and architects. It's a beautiful book. It's fabulous. It's just great. Uh, it, it should be a resource for, you know, Anybody interested in evolutionary social science should ought to be reading Vasari. But anyway. um, so this is the sort of stuff he hated. He hated the Greeks. Now, he didn't mean the ancient Greeks. That was like, they were like awesome. That's, you know, the ideal. He meant the, the modern Byzantine Greeks, who kind of apparently kind of dominated the art scene in the Italian peninsula before the Renaissance. Uh, so this, you know, he just, oh, his language on it is just beautiful. He was excoriating the Greeks, okay? And then... Um, so that's the enemy right there. That's the bad old stuff that his heroes overthrew completely, beginning not with Giotto. How many learned in school? I learned in school like the Renaissance begins with Giotto. Eh? No? Okay, that's what... Oh, yeah, a couple of you. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, in Vasari, who I think actually gets credit for inventing the Renaissance, uh, in Vasari, it's, it's, it's Giotto's uh, teacher, Cimabue, who at the beginning. Here's what he says. I love this. By the will of God in the city of Florence... In the year 1240, there was born to give first light to the art of painting Giovanni, surnamed Cimabue. So, you know, it's like, the, it's, it's, like, it's like Christ come down to earth, right? The first light to the art of painting. Wow. Let's have a look at this revolutionary art, this first art, first, first light to the art of painting. I want to see this. <laughs> That's 1268 to 71 when he put that together. So if I'd have just shown you these, you know, good luck figuring out which was like the earlier and which was like the later one. Eh? Yeah, those damn Italians, that's right. Uh, so Cimabue was perhaps more evolutionary than revolutionary. And for me, the point here, you know, is that he was clearly building on what was already there. The possibility for a crucifix, such as he gave us, uh, like that, was clearly, that possibility was clearly there already. It sort of fit into the system. Other possibilities were not there for Chimabue. Could you imagine this, right, being painted in 13th century Florence? You know, 1250 or 1270 or something like that? 
This, of course, now forgive me, I'm going to butcher the poor innocent French language, but this is Picasso's La Demoiselles d'Avignon, whatever, the ladies of Avignon, 1907, generally considered like the first, uh, first Cubist painting. So uh, this would not have been recognized as art. So the opportunity, right, so even if somehow we, we do the silly mental, the already absurd mental experiment of imagining this getting painted, it wouldn't have been recognized as art. Right? So the opportunity had to be out there objectively in order for, well, in 1270, Chimabui to jump in and do it, or in 1907, Picasso to jump in and do it. Possibility like this did not exist for Chimabue. All right, so that, that kind of, I think, puts in our brain how this thing of creative evolution works, or helps us to put in our brain how this thing of creative evolution works. This is the logic of creative evolution, which is to say the logic of evolution. Okay? The adjacent possible, meaning the, the possibility is right immediately now in front of us, okay? at this moment in time, the, for the immediate future, this is... Duke Kaufman's phrase, the beautiful phrase, I think, the adjacent possible. So the adjacent possible contains opportunities, be they biological niches, profit opportunities, artistic possibilities. Right? Some of these opportunities are seized by the agents of the system, be they molecules, genes, organisms, entrepreneurs, painters. Most of the opportunities are not seized, but some of them are, and the system iterates. The new adjacent possible contains a different set, or really math nerds or a different class, uh, of opportunities. Some are seized, most are not. The system iterates. You cannot list all the possibilities and all the uh, iterated adjacent possibles that would unfold over time any more than you could, for example, to use another beautiful Stu Kaufman example, list all the uses of a screwdriver. In 1850, you're not going to list radio antenna as a possible use of a screwdriver. So this is a listability problem. Okay. Interestingly, to the historians of economic thought in the room, rediscovered independently by Stu Kaufman. Okay. Because for us, right, that's like, you know, we, we, were, we, were, we were nursed on a listability problem. Right? Uh, but Kaufman had to find it out for himself. Uh, anyway, so this system is not deterministic in anything like the way the so-called Newtonian systems are determinate. A system evolving in this way is not a causal system in the sense of that term that they use in the physics classes, right? Because you can't lay out all the possible states of the system ahead of time. Therefore, you cannot state the system's so-called laws of motion, okay? There's no stable phase space. So in like a, a, a you know, sort of standard physics def, you know, model, which is sort of how we tend to think about dynamics and stuff, is uh, as the, the Newton taught us how to think, you know? And, and so the, the sort of that Newtonian way how we think is, well, we have the initial conditions. We have a, sort of this, this, this space of possible things that could happen. We have initial conditions, and we have laws of motion existing maybe in the form of a set of equations. And then you just, you know, push the button, and the, and the, and the, and the system unwinds. The tapestry that has already been woven unrolls, at least up to like a stochastic error term. So that's kind of how we think of dynamic explanations. Okay? But if you can't list all the possibilities and all the iterated um, adjacent possibles as, as they unfold over time, then you, then you don't have a so-called phase space. You don't have that space of possibilities 
that you need to fix if you're going to write down the so-called laws of motion of the system. You don't have that. You have instead novel possibilities coming up. Now, as far as I can figure out, I don't see why we shouldn't just, write, just, just stop at the idea that that's an epistemic type of novelty, right? New to us. Okay? But Stu Kaufman is convinced, it's, no, it's ontological novelty. All right, maybe he's right. I don't know. He's smarter than I am. I don't know. But anyway, be that as it may, there are these novel possibilities that come up. It's a not a causal system because you can't lay out all the possible states of the system ahead of time. So the system itself is creative. Notice this logic works not only for like the evolution of art and everything, but it works for biological evolution. In fact, that's where this theory of creative evolution begins is in biology. So maybe, you know, the gazelle and the lion are individually creative because they do have central nervous systems. But I don't think, you know, creatures that have no central nervous system, you know, amoebas or whatever, paramecium, I don't think they're, I don't think they're creative at the individual level. I don't think molecules are creative okay, in anything remotely like the way how a human being is creative. Right? And yet... These novel possibilities emerged from biological evolution before we had organisms with central nervous systems. Right? So, so I think that really nails it down. The creativity is in the system, not in the agents within the system. Okay? Yes. yes. Maybe, you know, I guess if you, you know, buttonhole me, I can't, I can't think of a reason why I have to specifically deny that human beings may be creative, but I'm not sure what extra work is done by adding that assumption, yeah. given that the adjacent possible is filled with novel possibilities. Yeah. So creative evolution helps explain why prediction is hard. You know, let me make sure I've said everything I wanted to say. Right, Novel elements created by the system, new possibilities that did not exist before. So creative evolution helps explain why prediction is hard, why prediction is impossible at some level of detail. If full prediction were possible, there would be laws of motion. There would be laws of motion for the system. If you, had, if you could have full prediction, then you could have these you know, laws of motion for the system, and you could maybe probably write them down ahead of time. But if, as a theory of creative evolution maintains, there are no such laws, then we cannot anticipate the novel possibilities that will come along as the system evolves. Well, this view of creative evolution helps us to resolve a dispute about entrepreneurial opportunities. Are they discovered, as Israel Kirzner argued, or uh, argues, or created as shackle held? This is a central fight right now in like the A management journals talking about entrepreneurship. This is like a big issue in entrepreneurship literature right now. Okay? With the Kirznerians on the one side and guys like Jay Barney at the University of Utah on the other side. Okay? with, um, you know, the Kersnerians saying opportunities are discovered, and then guys like Jay Barney and uh, uh, Rob Webkers and others saying, oh, well, no, you know, social life is, is, is subjective, and so there's this creation in the mind, and then, you know, right? So they take a kind of very Schakelian uh, point of view. I think it is fair to say that neither side of this dispute has taken an evolutionary perspective on the issue. Okay? The theory of creative evolution gives us a rather straightforward resolution to the problem of whether entrepreneurial opportunities are discovered or created. The theory of creative evolution gives us this solution. Evolution creates, 
entrepreneurs discover. Evolution creates entrepreneurs discover. So we have the Kersnerian theory of entrepreneurship in which entrepreneurs discover objectively existing, externally objectively existing possibilities, some of which work out, some of which don't. Right? Sometimes entrepreneurs get profits, sometimes they get lost, get losses. But you can't say that the tapestry is just all rolled up and just unfolding right? because there is novelty in the system. But the novelty is coming from the system, not from like the individual crania you know, of entrepreneurs. Or at least, I don't see what extra intellectual work is done by imputing to individual entrepreneurs ex nihilo creation. All right, so that's as much of an overview as I can give this morning. I hope I haven't run uh, over my time. Um, you can see that there's a lot of work to be done. The theory of experts is just barely being, you know, uh, begun here, and it has this very important application in criminal justice. Uh, so far, I'm like the only, almost the only economist, except for a couple of people who've written a couple of things with me, uh, working on forensic science, which I think is a huge problem. Criminal justice in general is a huge problem. View criminal justice as an epistemic system. Right? There's so much work to be done in this regard. Uh, judges, for example. Judges are very important. Judges are experts in the sense of the theory of expert because they're asked to render an opinion. They're asked to render an opinion on things like what evidence, what scientific evidence is admissible. So in the everyday sense of the word, they're totally not experts on science. But in the economic meaning of, uh, from the theory of information choice, they're totally experts because they're being asked to render an opinion on what scientific evidence is admissible. Okay? This is a problem. And uh, in general, sort of the incentives of judges and how they affect the epistemic consequences of the criminal justice system, I think, has really just not been looked at. And I think it's vital. Judges are so important to the system. Um, or something like, you know, child protective services. You know, Steve Horowitz is uh, always, you know, thumping, uh, beating the drum, rightly, I think, beating the drum for uh, free-range children movement, this stuff like that. Well, um, yeah, the child protective uh, services employees are they're like experts and they're going to decide for you you know how you raise your children what's permissible what's not permissible there's a problem there there's a risk of expert failure because they have a monopoly and because they're deciding for you instead of just being advisory so there's a high risk of expert failure there so the theory of information choice should ought to, um, give us some uh, insight into both the problems of child protective services and maybe some design principles for for ameliorative changes uh, art history can be looked at from this point of view. Uh, Zeck Hauser has a co-authored book on the um, patronage system in Renaissance Italy. It's beautiful, but he doesn't take a fully uh, epistemic point of view. So I think you know an Austrian epistemics could could really enrich that regulation, medicine, even you know espionage. Where's Chris Coyne? Espionage, you know, all these things. Business cycles, of course, quality processes. There's a lot of applied uh, topics where we need to bring this perspective to bear, and it hasn't that much been brought to bear. So we're on the more theoretical side. Well, okay, I've been talking about experts. I haven't said a peep about the theory of expectations, but I think theory of expectations clearly you know, fits into this Austrian epistemics vision I've been attempting to, to convey. Entrepreneurship theory totally needs this Austrian epistemic vision, in my humble opinion. I talk elsewhere about something called epistemic engineering. So, you know, how do we, if we live in a complex adaptive system, how do we, quote, engineer uh, better epistemic results? Well, and so on. Okay. Um, and wide open. All right. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the F.A. Hayek Program, visit ppe.mercatus.org.